I do want to go ahead and encourage you to turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We are in a study of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and um, we're in a section of the book that deals with the seven churches that John mentioned earlier in his greeting there in chapter 1. And so chapters 2 and 3 consist of seven letters written to seven churches with a message from the Lord of the church himself. Now, these letters are not lengthy. They're brief. They're to the point. Uh, You might can think of them as postcards from Patmos. As John is in exile there on Patmos, and yet it's not John writing to the churches. It's the Lord Jesus who's sending a direct message to these seven churches that are mentioned. And these letters to the seven churches are powerful. Each one just resonates with a sense of urgency. And the message of the seven churches is just as relevant now, just as timely now as when they were first written. And many of the issues I do believe that the modern church is facing could really be addressed if we would listen carefully to the message that's conveyed to the seven churches of Revelation. You'll notice there's a phrase that is mentioned with each of these seven letters, and it's this phrase, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means that God has a very real message to the church in every generation from these seven letters that were sent to seven literal churches. Now again, just by way of introduction, the seven letters represent seven literal churches that were in existence at the time of writing. And yet, they're also representative of the local church in every generation. In these letters, the Lord lays out his plan for the local church and reveals the fact that he's placed his church in the midst of a dark world, and he's ordained his church as his chosen instrument, really, to impact human history. Jesus has left his church in the world for the purpose of being his light, being his hands, being his feet in a world in need. Um, The church is the pillar and ground of truth. And so God intends for the church to have an influence over the affairs of this world. And these seven letters show us how important the church is from God's point of view. And so within these letters, you'll find warning, you'll find encouragement to churches that are struggling with sin and complacency on the inside. Uh, They're dealing with persecution on the outside. And in each of these letters, the Lord teaches his church how to live and shine as a light in a dark place, all while confronting the issues that creep up in the life of the congregation. Now, there were many other churches all throughout Asia Minor at the time John received the revelation. But these seven churches were chosen specifically because they represent conditions that have prevailed really in every generation of church history. Um, Every true local church can fit somewhere into one of these seven models at some point in human history. And there may be characteristics of several of the churches that are true of an individual church. So somewhere in this list, we'll find a profile that best applies to us as a local congregation. And so each of these letters, I told you last week, they follow a similar pattern that is sevenfold in nature. Uh, It begins with a word of correspondence involving the messenger of the church in a particular city. And that's followed up by a word of characteristic about the Lord of the church that was revealed to John in the vision that he received back in chapter one, that vision of Jesus and all of his power and all of his glory. That's followed up by a word of commendation from Jesus to the church, all with the exception of the church at Laodicea. He didn't have anything positive to say about this particular church. Uh, There's a word of criticism from Jesus to each of the churches with the exception of the church at Smyrna that we're going to look at here in just a minute uh, and the church at Philadelphia. That's followed up by a word of correction to those churches that are being criticized for something that was perhaps out of balance or out of whack. 
There's a word of challenge involving the way that the churches hear and respond to the word. And then each letter closes with a word of comfort that involves a promise that's taken from the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And so with that in mind, let's consider tonight what the Lord has to say to the second church that's mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2, and that's the church that was located in the city of Smyrna. We considered Ephesus last week, and if Ephesus was the church facing a crisis of motivation that had left its first love, then the church at Smyrna, this is a church that's facing a crisis of affliction, a church that was facing persecution uh, from the world around it. So verse 8, the Bible says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your your poverty, but you were rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So you'll notice there's not a word of criticism that's being leveled against the church at Smyrna. Here we find a picture of a church that was in the midst of conflict This is a church that is in the midst of adversity, a church experiencing affliction brought on for the sake of their faith. They're being persecuted because of their witness to the gospel. And Jesus has nothing but positive things to say to this church while at the same time encouraging these believers uh, to continue living on faithfully uh, even though things would not get better, things would get worse as far as their temporal circumstances were concerned. You know, I read a poem some time ago, and you perhaps have heard this, but it says, I asked God for strength that I might achieve, but I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things, but I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy, I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of others. I was given weakness that I might sense my need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. So I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I am among men most richly blessed. I thought of that poem when I thought about the church at Smyrna. Here you have a church that has nothing by way of material things, but Jesus is commending the church because of the spiritual wealth that was theirs. Here's a group of believers who understood what it meant to hurt They knew something about pain brought on for the sake of their Christian faith. Which, by the way, no matter what age you are, no matter your background, pain is one of those things that just knows where to find you. Someone has said that pain is the universal language that all of us can speak. And all of us have had our fair share of pain at some point or another in life, whether it be the pain of a broken heart or whether it be the pain of chronic illness the pain of sudden loss, uh, the pain of depression, uh, the pain of being slandered, falsely accused. Pain comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes, each one tailor-made to fit various seasons of life. The church at Smyrna knows what, or they knew what it meant to hurt. Affliction was something that they were familiar with. These believers were under pressure, not because of sickness, they were under pressure, not because of just random circumstance. Here's a group of believers who are experiencing some affliction simply because they were being persecuted for the sake of their faith. 
The church in Smyrna is under persecution here in this passage. You know, a lot of church historians have pointed out this paradoxical truth that the more the church has been persecuted, the greater has been its purity and strength. It's kind of paradoxical. There's a great British preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, who said that it's a remarkable thing that the church of Christ persecuted has been the church of Christ pure and therefore powerful. But the church of Christ patronized has always been the church paralyzed and therefore the church in peril. You think of patronized. This is the church that's not really seen as being a threat by the enemy. Well, let me tell you, the church at Smyrna is not a patronized congregation. This is a congregation that the enemy set his sights upon and sought to destroy. And from their example, we learn that it always costs to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And by the way, in some places around the world, that cost is a lot more expensive than in other places around the world. Uh, many of you, you've been following closely what's been going on in Afghanistan, and our hearts break for believers who are facing severe persecution now in Afghanistan. But other places around the world, I think about the church in Iran and the church in North Korea. You know, we live in a country that was founded upon this principle of religious liberty. And the framers of our Constitution, the founding fathers of our nation understood something about religious liberty. And even that's under attack and is being threatened even as we speak. And yet, I think you would agree with me that religious liberty is one of those things that has been the exception in church history rather than the norm. The norm throughout church history has been persecution and adversity, affliction, rejection at the hands of an unbelieving world. This is what God's people have been experiencing all throughout the history of Christianity. It's what many believers experience every day, even in 2021. I came across some statistics not long ago on global persecution. And these numbers may be shocking to you, but those statistics said that approximately 163,000 Christians die every year for their faith. Half of all the Christians who've ever died for their faith were killed in this past century alone, a total of around 35 million. And one thing that organizations like Voice of the Martyrs uh, tell us is that persecution is something that tends to increase as evangelistic effectiveness increases. So the more that a church, the more that a Christian actually has uh, an impact or an influence on the world around him or her, the more that that Christian is going to be attacked by the enemy. And the more that that believer is going to be seen as being a threat. We see the Christian who doesn't really want to take seriously his or her witness, the church that doesn't really want to take seriously its witness and evangelistic impact, the enemy will leave that kind of church alone. But the moment that you begin to be effective in terms of your witness, let me tell you, the enemy will put you in his crosshairs. Let me write, you may want to write these websites down. You can search these in your own time. But let me just give you two websites to just kind of help you stay on top of the state of affairs in terms of the persecuted church around the world. Uh, one organization I've already mentioned, it's Voice of the Martyrs. Persecution.com is their website. You can go on Voice of the Martyrs' website. You can read stories, things that are going on around the world, ways that you can pray for the persecuted church in various countries. And then another organization is uh, International Christian Concern. This is persecution.org. <laughs> so you don't have a whole lot to remember in terms of the website. It's either persecution.com or persecution.org. Don't go to persecution.gov. I don't know what that might be or what that might lead to, but... <laughs> Let me just direct your attention to the screen for just a minute. I want to point up just a video, uh, just a quick clip from the International Christian Concerns website. What are we talking about when we refer to persecution? What is it that believers are experiencing in countries that you'll recognize, that you'll be somewhat familiar with? Right? So just pay close attention to this video clip.
All right, so you remember those images from the news where the video was released by ISIS, 21 Christians there murdered on the beach and beheaded right there on the beach. What is persecution? It's attacks for your faith. It's the destruction of your church, your property, the loss of your livelihood for the sake of your faith, all of which the church in Smyrna had been experiencing according to what Jesus says. With the church at Smyrna, we're given an example of a church made up of believers who were passionately living for Jesus to such a degree that they were laying down their lives for his sake because of their faith and their love for him. And so several things that we need to consider about the church. Number one, notice the reproach that was being suffered by the church. Again, the letter is addressed to the angel or messenger of the church there in Smyrna. And if we go back to our map of these seven churches, you can see there on the screen behind me, uh, Smyrna was located just to about 35 miles to the north of the city of Ephesus. And during John's day, uh, the city of Smyrna was the leading city there uh, of all of those cities in Asia Minor. It was known for its wealth. It was known for its commerce. It was known for its architectural beauty. And many referred to Smyrna in those days as the pride of all of Asia. So you have just this wealthy city. And in fact, Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that is still in existence today. All the other cities, you can tour the ruins there in modern-day Turkey. But the city of Smyrna, now it's referred to as Izmir. It's the third largest city in, in the country of Turkey. But the name Smyrna, it came from a word that means myrrh. Myrrh was a fragrant spice that was obtained whenever the flowering myrrh tree was pierced or crushed. You remember that myrrh was one of the gifts of the wise men, according to Matthew's gospel, uh, where they came and brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, there at the Lord's nativity. And so this is a very appropriate name for this first century church because this church at Smyrna gave off a fragrance of Christ all throughout the region because it was a church that was often crushed, it was often pierced, often afflicted for its faith. And based upon what we're told here, life for those believers in Smyrna was extremely difficult. Uh, notice the stress that they were under. Uh, Jesus says here in this passage, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, the city of Smyrna was a city uh, that was rich as far as its emperor worship was concerned. Uh, it was well noted for its emperor worship going all the way back to 26 AD uh, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. There was a temple built in the city of Smyrna to his honor. In John's day, you've got Domitian who's the emperor and the cult of emperor worship had really been ramped up throughout the empire. So the citizens of the city of Smyrna were eager in their worship of the emperor. And so let me tell you what that involved uh, citizens of the city, as well as Christians, every year were expected to visit the temple to the emperor and pay an annual tribute offering, which involved basically uh, offering a pinch of incense and saying, Caesar is Lord. Those who refused to do that were marked as being political traitors. They were faced with severe marginalization in society, branded as rebels, and so in addition to refusing to do this, um, believers in Smyrna refused to visit pagan temples devoted to Rome's pantheon of gods. They were accused as being, of being atheists. That was one of the insults that was leveled at believers in the first century. And the reason they were called atheists was because they didn't worship the Roman pantheon of gods. And so there was a lot of superstition that was attached to that and oftentimes, citizens of a city, if you didn't worship the patron deity of that city, then you were exposing the city to some kind of plague that would come when that patron deity uh, would be displeased. And so 
the believers there in Smyrna constantly were being attacked because they refused to worship the emperor. They refused to worship pagan deities. Something else that was going on, according to what Jesus says here, there was persecution coming from a Jewish segment of society. So you had Gentile persecution because the believers refused to worship the emperor and Roman deities. And then you had a Jewish segment of persecution that came uh, because they had rejected the gospel. And so they were literally faced with pressure from all sides. Notice that word tribulation that's used there. It's a word that means crushing pressure. It was a word that uh, was used to describe the process by which juice was extracted from the grape. Jesus says, I know all about the, the pressure that you're under for the sake of your faith, the tribulation that you're experiencing because of your faith. You're being slowly squeezed as the society around you is putting the pressure to you. You're in a vice, and I know all about it. That's what Jesus says here. That led to poverty. Poverty, the word used for poverty there in verse 9 was a word that referred to total destitution. Again, they were exposed to slander. So here you have this picture of believers who were suffering, and suffering has this way, folks, of stripping from our lives all that's comfortable and all that we tend to retreat into. These believers were left with nothing but their faith in one another. So that's the stress that they're under. But then notice the significance of this whole ordeal. Because verse 10 says, listen to what Jesus says, don't, don't fear what you're about to suffer. So he's not painting a rosy picture. He's not saying, you know, suck it up buttercup. Deal with it. He's not giving them empty platitudes. He's realistically dealing with the church and he's telling them that things are about to get worse. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you're going to have tribulation. So he's, he's pointing out the real culprit behind their persecution. Ultimately, it wasn't their pagan neighbors. Ultimately, it wasn't their unbelieving Jewish neighbors. It wasn't city officials. It wasn't the officials of Rome. The real enemy was the devil whose relentless attacks against the church would continue, but they wouldn't continue on forever. The specific persecution that the Lord is referring to would last only 10 days. More than likely, this was a localized form of persecution, a very specific persecution that would only last 10 literal days. But I believe the point being driven home is that they would be limited in scope. They would be temporary in duration. And by the way, listen, God always determines the boundaries of what the devil can and cannot do. And you, you go to the book of Job and you learn that from Job's life, don't you? God gave... Satan access to Job's life, but, but God is the one who determined the boundaries. He said, you can attack Job's health, you can attack Job's fortune, you can attack Job's family, but as far as the man himself is concerned, leave him alone. So don't have this idea in your mind that somehow the devil is sort of the, on, a, on equal footing with the God of the universe. He is not. Erwin Lutzer said he's God's devil. And as such, he only does what he's permitted to do in the overall plan of God. He's not the one calling the shots. God is the one calling the shots. And he's a defeated enemy. You feel like you're under attack. You may not realize he's a defeated enemy. You might feel like he's dogging your steps, but he is a defeated enemy. Kind of reminds me of, of why D-Day was so important in, in World War II. When Allied forces uh, invaded continental Europe, June 6, 1944, you had both Allied leaders as well as the German high command. They knew that victory had been secured once the Allied forces took the beaches of Normandy. Operation Overlord was a success. From that point forward, you know what it did? Germany was in retreat. Listen, but the war wasn't won until 11 months. Fighting continued for 11 months until VE Day. 
But because the Allied forces were successful at Normandy, that spelled victory that would come 11 months later because it gave the Allied forces a strategic advantage over the enemy. Let me tell you something. D-Day for the child of God began with the first coming of Jesus Christ into this world. We're not fighting for victory as God's people, but rather we're fighting from a position of victory. Victory was secured through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since then, the kingdom of God has been moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet as the church, we're struggling against the powers of darkness. And we're waiting for VE Day, Victory on Earth Day, whenever the king himself is going to split the eastern sky wide open and he's going to come in and establish his kingdom in a literal sense upon the earth. But until then, we're in the heat of battle with a, with a foe who is, who is furious out of a sense of defeat. Like a snake with its head cut off, but it just don't know it's dead yet. So here you have these believers in Smyrna. Man, they're suffering for the sake of their faith, but man, God gives them some wonderful hope that they can cling to in the midst of their circumstances. The source of their strength then is seen next. It's not by coincidence that Jesus reminds them of who he is. Again, with each of these letters, you need to pay attention to the fact that the Lord reminds these believers of something about himself. What is it that he's reminding the persecuted church in Smyrna of concerning himself? He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Don't miss how these words would have been received to that suffering audience. I mean, imagine yourself in their shoes. Imagine you're sitting among the gathering of God's people there in Smyrna, Uh, some cold morning. You're there, you're in a small, dimly lit room that houses whatever few believers were remaining. A once lively crowd of believers now features obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away under the persecution. Others are simply gone. Maybe they had been arrested. Maybe they'd been exiled, executed but they risk their lives as God's people just to meet, just to pray, just to be able to get together and sing, just to be able to read from scripture. They were all outcasts in need of a word of encouragement. Can you imagine the encouragement that would come to their hearts whenever they read this postcard from Patmos that came from the Lord of the church himself where the Lord is speaking into their situation and his words are these, I know, I know what's going on in your life. I know your tribulation. I know the pressure that you're up against. I know your suffering. And yet he's reminding them that he's the one who is first and last. He's someone who could identify with them, someone who stood by their, their side in the midst of the fire, someone who offered to them their own speci- his own special presence. I don't know of anything that would be more encouraging as a believer in the midst of trial. I am the first and the last. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to be there long after the city of Smyrna is no longer even a thought. I'm the first and the last. Uh, That means you're hemmed in by my own special presence. And folks, that's some truth that believers need when the world puts its squeeze on us. And not only is he the first and the last, but Jesus says he's the one who suffered and overcame the grave. I died And I came to life. So in Jesus, here's one who knows what it means to suffer. I mean, here's the the beauty of Christianity. This is the beauty of the gospel. Our God is not some distant deity who's detached from the feelings of our hurts and our pains and our agony and our suffering. But here's someone who knows what it means to suffer. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And yet his suffering didn't defeat him. It was by means of his suffering and his resurrection that he robbed the grave of its power. Therefore, they had no need to fear. 
No matter how the enemy raged against their faith, no matter how their faith was assaulted and under attack, they had no need to fear. He is both savior and sustainer of those who place their trust in him. I mean, they could sing that song we sing so frequently. No guilt in life, no fear in death, This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to my final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Boy, the believers in Smyrna could sing that, couldn't they? So that's the reproach then that the church is suffering. Now, notice secondly, the riches that the church possessed. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And then notice parenthetically, he says, but you are rich. So in a paradoxical way, even though they were poor, Jesus is saying that they were really rich. Even though they had nothing from a worldly perspective, they had everything from a heavenly perspective. Now, fast forward and compare this to what's later said about the church at Laodicea. That was a church that had plenty of material riches, but it was spiritually impoverished. And the paradox of Smyrna is that a church from our vantage point that seems to be the most poor may be a church that's the most rich from heaven's perspective. Don't equate the blessing of God strictly in terms of material stuff. You can have a lot of material stuff and be spiritually poor. At the same time, you can be materially poor but have spiritual riches that are out of this world. So so the Lord is redirecting the perspective of the church away from the world's standards of evaluation and he's reminding them of what really matters in his own estimation. Their spiritual riches were far more important Uh, than their material destitution. Someone says, okay, well, how exactly were they rich based upon what's said about the church, the fact that they're willing to suffer for the sake of their faith, that tells me that their thoughts were on eternal realities. Jesus says, I know you're poverty, but you're rich. And the fact that they were suffering shame for his sake reveals where their minds were. Because listen, what we think about always determines the direction that our life will take. If Jesus is precious to you, if he's foremost in your thoughts, foremost in your heart, then that will determine the direction that your life will take. Uh, Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. So the fact that these believers are suffering for their faith really is evidence that their minds, their thoughts, their affections were on eternal realities. Not their temporal situation. They weren't living for the gold of Smyrna. But their minds, their hearts, their, 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 their thoughts were fixed upon what they had been given in Jesus Christ. And so that means that their treasures were in eternal places. Their thoughts were on eternal realities, but ultimately their treasures were in eternal places. They may be poor in substance, poor in the eyes of the world, but man, they're rich in the eyes of Jesus. And that's what matters most, right? In fact, it's the only thing that matters. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jim Hamilton, I love this quote. He said, we who have the wealth of which Jesus speaks were like a poor man boarding the Titanic. We watch all the bejeweled people of wealth and fashion and etiquette and connection pass us by with never so much a nod of courtesy because all we brought on board the ship that will sink in the night is a small, seemingly worthless lifeboat. But let me tell you something, when the ship is going down, the only thing that matters is that lifeboat. Not how much gold you bought on board the ship, not what kind of designer clothing you have hanging in your wardrobe there in your room and on your, listen, all of that stuff will be at the bottom of the Atlantic. 
The only thing that matters is the lifeboat. That's because, listen, when Jesus Christ comes again, all the stuff that the world says is important, folks, ultimately is going to be irrelevant on that day. The only thing that matters is, will I be in possession of the kind of wealth that he's referring to here when he says that the church there in Smyrna really is rich? One last thing, what about the reward received by the church? There at the end of verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So there's a promise here at the end of this postcard and the promise is twofold. Uh, First, they're promised an enduring trophy. Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's the promise of eternal life given to the one who trusts in Jesus. And the word crown that's used there, uh, there were two words in Greek translated crown. Uh, One was diadem. This was the crown worn by the king. It was a regal uh, honor possessed by the king. There was also a word stephanos. The name Stephanie, ladies, uh, guys, the name Stephen. Uh, can be traced back to this particular Greek word. But Stephanos, this was a wreath that would, be, uh, would have been placed upon the head of the athlete who came in first place in some kind of athletic contest. It's the victor's crown. It's a symbol of glory that comes through winning some contest. That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, These believers will be given an enduring trophy, uh, a crown, uh, the reward, the outcome of their faith. It's eternal life. And their perseverance under trial proves the genuineness of their faith. You know, the New Testament speaks of five crowns for the followers of Jesus. And each of these are the rewards for faithfulness in this life. What are those crowns? Well, you've got the crown of rejoicing. That's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's a crown that will be given to those who win others to Christ in this life. That's the crown of rejoicing. Paul refers to believers as being his crown of rejoicing. Then there's the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is given to those who eagerly uh, live in anticipation of the return of Jesus. It's the crown of righteousness. There's the crown of imperishability, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Those who live their lives in purity, self-control. 1 Peter 5 refers to the crown of glory. Those who lead the church with humility, integrity, they'll be rewarded with the crown of glory. And then there's the crown of life. It's mentioned here in this passage. It's also mentioned in James chapter one. This is a crown that's given to those who faithfully endure affliction for Christ's sake. As you faithfully endure the circumstances, the pain, the hardships that's brought on for the sake of your faith, listen, there's a crown of life that's promised. Even though the world may kill the body, when persecution gets stirred up against the church, It's a painful thing. There are believers who are put to death for the sake of their faith. But Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. But instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then, these believers are given an eternal victory. An enduring trophy, but ultimately, eternal victory is theirs. Again, he says, let... The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There in verse 11, God has something to say to you and to me. And this last promise, he says, the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The word not there, this is so good. In the Greek text, it's the strongest possible negative that could have been conveyed. The one who overcomes will not, no, never be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, the second death is described at the end of Revelation. We'll get to that eventually, but the second death is final judgment. 
The person who dies in his sin, apart from ever coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they die physically, but there's a second death when for all of eternity, such a person will be cast into the lake of fire, eternally separated from the presence of God. And so Jesus is saying to these believers here, that's something that you will never have to fear as someone who's come to faith in me. Yeah, you may lose your life physically for my sake and for the testimony of your faith. But that's just merely, death at that point will merely be a friend that will usher you into my presence. Because for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. We, we fear death. We think about death. We don't want to think about death simply because of the stigma that's associated with it. But you know something, folks? As a believer, you really have no fear. There's no reason for you to fear death because Jesus Christ took the sting out of death. Amen. And that's just a good word. That's hope. That's hope. I want us to close tonight. I want to do a little something different. I want us to close by singing a song. Y'all come on up here if you would and, and we're gonna sing this in just a minute. Here's the thing, y'all. Suffering in life, it may come, it may find you. Some of you may be experiencing it to some degree even presently in your life. But here's something that you can be encouraged by. It's not permanent it's only temporary. And you know, the Apostle Paul said, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the things we go through, the pain we experience, the adversity, the hardship, the affliction we experience, this is not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. You know, oftentimes I think we want fellowship with God, but we want it on our terms and we want it in the midst of our blessings. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we want to draw near to God and, and have fellowship with God simply on the basis of our blessings, your creature comforts. You think about your creature comforts. All of us have been given creature comforts. I thank God for air conditioning when it's 112 outside. But whenever the air conditioning goes out and we don't have that and we come together and we're hot and we sweat together, that's not persecution. <laughs> it may be loss of creature comfort, but man, it's nothing compared to what the church is experiencing in many places around the world. But a lot of times we want to have fellowship with God on the basis of our stuff. So much of our focus is on our stuff and whether or not we're comfortable Jesus, thank you for my stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, thank you for my house. I'm grateful to have a roof over my head. I'm grateful to live in a nice neighborhood. But I wonder what Jesus may say to that if I want to make that the basis of my fellowship with him. You know, he might say something like this. You know, I'm so glad that you have a house. I really am. But I don't know anything about that. Because when I walked where you walked, the birds of the air had nests, foxes had dens, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And we say, you know, Lord, thank you for my new vehicle. I'm so glad I got that pickup truck or that vehicle. I'm just so glad I got that, you know. And Jesus perhaps would say, I'm glad you got that. I don't know anything about it. I had to walk everywhere I went when I was on earth where you were. Got to ride a donkey one time into, into town, but even he hadn't been broke yet and I had to cowboy him up before I could ride him into town. <laughs> we say, well, Lord, thank you for our family. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my peer group. And Jesus says, well, I'm certainly glad you've got a peer group. I'm glad you've got associates, but yeah, I don't know anything about that. 
because everywhere I went, crowds followed, but then they turned their back on me. Even those who were my disciples abandoned me. See what I'm saying? We want to we have, have fellowship with God on the basis of stuff. Creature comforts. This is what we get so worked up about sometimes in life. But men and women, it is a shallow faith that only wants to connect with God on the basis of material benefit. But see, here's the thing. Many of you have been there before and you could testify to this, but one day you come in and your family and your friends will have despised you, betrayed your trust, wounded you, hurt you. You may have lost your job for the sake of your stand for the faith. You may have had a crowd come after you for some unknown reason. And you feel absolutely lower than a snake's belly. The things you thought you couldn't do without suddenly have all evaporated. You see, it's in those moments, that's when you'll sense a nail-pierced hand that will pull you up close to himself. He'll cradle you in his everlasting arms and he'll whisper to your hurting heart, I know something about that. I know what it is to be rejected. I know what it is to be despised. I know what it means to lose someone you love. At the graveside of Lazarus, I didn't just get misty-eyed, I wept. You've experienced the pain of loss? Jesus knows all about that. And aren't you grateful that he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother? And folks, let me tell you something. That's the kind of confidence you and I need as we go into a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to the faith. That's what these believers in Smyrna had. Let's stand. Let's sing. I want to close out our service tonight. I want us to sing that song I referenced. I know we sang this a couple of weeks ago. But let's sing this. I think this would be such an appropriate way to close tonight. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter.
Listen, affliction, testing, that kind of thing has this tendency of separating those things in our lives that are shakable from those things that are unshakable. My health, my job, my daily routines, all this stuff, those are shakable. But aren't you grateful that what you've been given in Jesus Christ is unshakable? And it's something that circumstance can never take away from the children of God. So bless his name. Bless his name. Listen, I hope and pray you have a wonderful week ahead. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful night.